before I thought we pray for Phil. I, I was, I just had that um, those verses from uh, the two disciples walking to on the Emmaus road with Jesus after Jesus' resurrection, and uh, they were kind of. Uh, depressed, um, uh, low in their spirits about what had happened to Jesus. Obviously, Jesus was crucified and, and um, that buried a, a lot of the expectations they thought were, were not met, and they were downcast. And Jesus meets them on the road to uh, Emmaus, and then they start talking, and um, he, he just explains the scriptures to them and opens, opens their eyes. And then uh, you know, they, they absolutely love his, his, the company of Jesus and say, well, you know, don't go, stay with us for a bit longer. And then, and then they, they, they stay longer and then they're about to eat, they break bread and um, they start eating. And then suddenly their eyes get open and they see that actually is Jesus talking to them, the resurrected Christ. And then Jesus disappears. And, 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 then, and then like they say to each other, wow, but didn't our hearts burn? as he opened the scriptures to us. And I think there, there is, there is a, 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 a really the kind of the Holy Spirit, the role of the Holy Spirit is that of opening up the scriptures, and, and he does it through, through people like Phil. And, and that is our prayer today, that um, the Holy Spirit will just um, fill Phil with, with his anointing. And as he shares the message that God has put in his heart. Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit will open hearts, open our eyes, God, and uh, open the scriptures and make us see, you know, through our spirit eyes. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Bless you. Heavenly Father, I know that I come practically prepared and spiritually unprepared. And we confess that we're all in that place to some extent. We're all practically prepared to hear a word. Some of us might even have bought a notebook. And we're all spiritually unprepared. Spiritually unprepared for your word that is living and active and sharp to touch us and change us. And we just confess that. And we ask that you would touch our spirit by your spirit that deep would call out to deep and that your word which originates in the very spirit of God would touch our spirits today and would change us, amen so if we go to the next slide this is the verse that we're going to be looking at today it's Jeremiah 29 verse 7 and it, it follows a a series in Jeremiah 29 that we've been looking at. And it says this, Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city of which I have called you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now I think that's a lovely verse, isn't it? This idea of, you know, pray for the city, pray for its prosperity, pray for its peace. Kind of who wouldn't want to do that almost? Who wouldn't expect good things out of that? And yet, because it comes across to us as so kind of lovely, we sometimes forget quite how controversial this was when it was first brought. Jeremiah, for writing and saying things like this, he got thrown into prison. He got 
thrown into a well on the assumption that he was just going to starve to death down there. He got into all kinds of trouble at the highest level. And we forget how controversial this was. But of course, the clue as to why this was so controversial and why even the idea that you could or should do this was so challenging, the clue is right there in the verse. It says, pray, seek the peace and prosperity of the city into which I have called you into exile. The Babylonians had this policy of exile. And at the time, Israel was a nation. It was a kingdom that had been conquered by the Babylonian Empire. And the Babylonians had discovered over the last hundred years or so that if you just left people where they were, what happened is the Babylonian army swept in, it conquered them, it then moved on to whatever its next target was. And these people you left behind all kind of rose up in rebellion and tried to overthrow the Babylonian officials who'd been left behind to rule them and govern them. And that was a bit of a problem if you were a Babylonian king. So the idea they came up with was this. We won't leave them, or at least we, we certainly won't leave any of the leaders, any of the influencers, any of the people who might have any nous about them, in the place where they grew up, the place where they belong, the place they know and understand. Instead, we're going to take them and we're going to move them to the far side of the empire. And we're going to put them into a place where they won't cause any trouble. And this was Babylonian policy. It wasn't just what happened to Israel. It was what happened to so many of the nations and places that they conquered. And so... The city they were being asked to pray for was not their city. It wasn't Jerusalem. It was a city of exile in Babylon into which they'd been taken. So next slide. This is the reality of exile. Exile is a place that you're deported to. It's a place that you are taken to against your will, against what you want. In Jerusalem, these people had wealth. In their city of exile, they found themselves in poverty at the very bottom of the tree because they'd been sent there literally with nothing other than what they could carry on their backs. In Jerusalem, they owned property. In the city of exile, they were basically serfs or servants. They had no property. They had no rights of ownership. Other people owned them for all practical purposes. In Jerusalem, they had independence. They were a self-ruling, self-governing nation. In the city of exile, they were ruled over harshly by foreign rulers. In Jerusalem, okay, there were problems in Jerusalem, which is why God allowed them to be exiled. But at least in terms of their law and their aspirations, their intention was to live righteously. In the city of exile, immorality just abounded, and that was seen as perfectly normal. There wasn't even a pretense of righteousness. In Jerusalem, they worshipped the living God at the temple. In the city of exile, they were surrounded by pagan idols. So you can see why it was controversial that Jeremiah should ask them to pray for the peace and the prosperity of the place that you had been taken into exile. Why would you want to do that? And to really round the point home, I've got a few pictures. Sadly enough, this is not the last time this happened to the people of Israel. This is the Krakow ghetto, um, early, early 1940s. It, it's a place where I've been, and I, I've seen some of the sites, which is why I chose these pictures. There are plenty of others we could have chosen. So you can see there the, the, the barbed wire fence. That, that, was, that was what they found when they arrived in this city of exile in Krakow. They were trapped in one tiny small district. The, the official rules were that a house must have at least two square meters per person. Just think of that for a moment. That's a bed and a tiny bit of space alongside it. 
So even in the average bedroom, you're going to have three or four people in bunks. Or, or the other rule, if you couldn't measure that, was no more than three people per window. So how many, how many windows has your house got? Anyone work it out? Half a dozen? So six threes, about 18 people your house would be asked to have on the basis of um, three per window. So this is how crammed in they were. Later on, they were used as forced labour to build a wall around it because it was all just so embarrassing to see the people exiled inside in these terrible, cramped, dehumanising conditions. You can just about see the wall. It all had this shape. It's quite pretty. It had those kind of curved arch tops on it and it surrounded it so those outside wouldn't have to see the human hell that had been created on the inside. Um, these ones are some of the lucky ones. They're dragging the few possessions they could salvage from their homes in there. Later on, all you were allowed was a, a, a small suitcase per person, so even this wouldn't have been permitted. And you can see them surrounded by security guards and soldiers with everything that goes on. That is the reality of what a city of exile looked like, and that's not a lot different to what they would have experienced when they arrived in Babylon. So pray for the peace and the prosperity of the city that I've called you into exile. Why would I want to do that? Why would I want to pray for the peace and prosperity of my persecutors? Or at minimum, shouldn't I at least divide them into, um, you know, those who try and help me? Oscar Schindler was in Krakow. Um, and those who oppress you, which is almost everybody else. And yeah, maybe I'll pray for the ones who are trying to help me and the rest, God help them, you know. But as Christians, this is exactly what we are called to do. Look at the next verse. It isn't just the Old Testament that says this. This is Jesus, Matthew 5, 43 to 44. You have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And that was kind of the, the tradition that people have been brought up in. And if we're honest, it's what human beings always default back to, isn't it? Love your friend, hate your enemy. That's seen as normal behavior. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for their peace and prosperity. Exactly the same as that verse in Jeremiah. So that's what Jesus taught. And Jesus wasn't teaching this from a place of some kind of abstract, lovely idea that he was talking about. If you look at the next slide, Jesus, of course, was in exile because he had come from the very right hand of the Father. He had come from God's heavenly kingdom. He had come from a place of perfection where there was no unrighteousness. Jesus knew that he was in exile in this time on earth from his heavenly home. He was living in a very different city to the city of God. But he also knew that he was there because his father had called him. Just as in Jeremiah, Jeremiah prophesies that the people had been called into this city of exile into which they'd been sent. One of the most amazing things about Jesus is how completely he lives out this principle of incarnation. Um, those who've got a bit of Spanish language background kind of get it easier than we do. Incarn incarne means you, you would have had chili con carne if you're, in, if you're from Britain. And it's, it's chili with meat, isn't it? So incarne means in the meat. It means in the flesh, literally, you know, viscerally with all the, the blood and the dirt and the sweat and the gooey bits that give you jip at night and all that sort of thing. You know, it's, it, it's that very practical, visceral thing. Jesus was incarnated into this world. He came and lived in the same flesh that we all live in and complain about. And he was born into complete dependence. 
Jesus would literally not have lasted the first hour if it had not have been for a mother's love and care, if it not, had not have been for a father and a community and a village and a town protecting him and providing him food and life. Just think, the one who created every star and galaxy through his own hands is entirely dependent on what's basically a peasant community in an obscure bit of this planet, if he's even going to survive, if he's even going to live. Jesus was born into a place of complete dependence on the imperfect world, the imperfect city into which he came. He was born as a helpless baby in an occupied nation, dependent on the love of a working class family who themselves would very soon become refugees and have to flee for their lives into Egypt. He was dependent on a broken, messed up world for his food, for his shelter, for his protection. He was surrounded by people whose reaction to him and his message was uncertain and sometimes downright threatening. This was the world in which Jesus lived. And yet he lived this principle of incarnation. He chose to be dependent on the very world which right throughout his life, at just the turn of a moment, would suddenly turn around and persecute him. And that was the world he chose to come to. And that was the world that he made himself completely dependent upon. His future, his fate, his life, tied up with the destiny of the broken, violent, persecuting world that he came to save. He, play, he prayed for the peace and prosperity of the city into which he had been called into exile because he had allowed his destiny to become completely tied up with the world into which he came. He wasn't some aloof ruling God who came from a distance and kind of lorded it over the world. He was born at the very bottom of things. That was the world into which he came. And... We as his followers, not only are we called to live the same way, but we kind of know in our gut that we live the same way, don't we? I put that little verse on there. We're exiles too. We, there's a Bible verse that says we're in the world, but we're not of the world. We're in this place, but we don't really, really belong to this place. We belong to our heavenly home, which we kind of long for and we yearn for. And, that, and, and that's what we know. And that sense of living in exile... I'll be honest, it gets to me. It gets to me every day. I, I quite enjoy sitting down on Sunday afternoon and reading a paper, but I don't know which paper to buy. None of them reflect my identity or values as a follower of Jesus. They reflect the identities and the values of a world which feels like it's drawing further and further away from me with every passing year. My workplace constantly tries to, quote, educate me, into a set of cultural attitudes, which at best are worthless and pointless and have nothing to do with the kingdom of God, and at worst are downright destructive for me and my colleagues. And yet they're trying to force these values on me the whole time. I love my friends, but I know that many of the choices that they're making are wrong, and they're wrong in God's sight, and they're destructive for them, and they're destructive for the people around them. But how do, I, how do I speak out about that? What do I say? It's like I'm exiled into a culture that isn't my own. I'm surrounded by these things and that's just normal. How do you speak out against normal? The system that I live in, the economic system that I live in and that I look at in the world around me, it idolizes wealth. 
It exploits the poor in order to give more to those who already have enough. And I know that because I'm one of them. And every stone you uncover about how does the world work, how do economic systems work, how do trade systems work, how do political systems work, it, the whole system is broken. It idolises wealth. It exploits the poor. And that's not the world we want to live. I feel like I'm stuck in a city of exile whose values are completely alien to the, to the way in which I want the world to be and the way in which I know in my heart that the kingdom of God is and always was and will be and ultimately shall be. In my life, I look to God for healing, for wholeness, for my security, for my prosperity, for my direction, for my purpose, for my hope. And I really do look to God for those things and I really pray to those things. And I feel that everybody else is looking in the opposite direction. It's like you're standing in a crowd and I'm facing this way and you're all facing that way. Why am I the odd one out? I don't know if you've ever seen one of these pictures of like sort of the one fish swimming against the tide. That, that's that's kind of how I feel. I feel like I'm living in exile and that weighs on me. And I think I don't want this system to prosper. I don't want injustice to prosper anymore. I don't want godless values to prosper anymore. I don't want people to peacefully get on with stuff that is destructive for them and for the people around them. I don't want people to peacefully get on with things which ultimately are leading to their eternal damnation, not their eternal salvation. I don't want that to just peacefully carry on and happen. I want it to be disrupted. I want it to be disturbed. I want it to be overthrown. So if that's how I feel in my heart, if that's how I feel in my gut, how do I pray for the peace and prosperity of this place that God has called me into exile? How do I do that in any good conscience? Luckily, I've had a bit of practice. Um, th those of you who don't know me might not know that a few years ago I was a, I was a politician here in Thurrock. I was leader of one of the political parties on Thurrock Council. And when I became a politician, it was the first time in my life that I really actually had enemies. I didn't realise it really worked like this. I, I kind of thought it was all just posturing. And, you know, okay... The political parties, they agree on 75%. They disagree on 25%. They're all going to have a good old argument about that because you've got to make decisions somehow right. But kind of we all basically want the same thing, don't we? And that was the attitude I went in with. And I actually discovered that there were people, just because of the colour of badge that I was wearing, whose entire purpose was to get up, try and find ways all day to pull me down, make me miserable discredit what I say, destroy what I was trying to do, and at the end of the day, if they'd achieved any of those things, they would go to bed with a sense of satisfaction of a job well done. I actually genuinely had enemies for the first time in my life who really were out to get me in a political sense. And this verse, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, it strikes you with a new strength and vigour when you've actually got enemies and you know where they are and who they are and what they're up to and what they're trying to achieve. It gets you in a way that it doesn't when you haven't lived that experience. And some of you will have lived that experience in various contexts, some of you won't. Um, this was the first time I had. And I had to think, okay, how, God, I had to come to God on my knees and say, God, how do I pray for my enemies? How do I actually do this? What can I pray for them? Because I don't want them to succeed in what they're doing. Because what they're doing is A, wrong and godless, and B, very personally bad for me. So... 
I can't really pray that they succeed in that, can I? And I just had to seek God for how do you pray for your enemies? And this is what I came up with. I would pray for their health because I don't think it's God's will that anybody should be ill or sick. I, I think that's not of the kingdom of God. And I, you know, politics, regardless of what side you're on, is a very stressful environment that takes its toll on your health. I only got the job I got because my predecessor had a heart attack because of the pressure he was under. Um, I would pray for their prosperity. I don't believe poverty is God's will for anybody. I wouldn't necessarily pray for them to be rich, but I would pray that they would have enough. Bizarrely, in a world that assumes that politicians are all on the take, you make quite a financial sacrifice to be a politician in local government because you have to give up a lot of time for a, a relatively small um, amount of money. They certainly don't pay you anything resembling a full salary. Um, so I knew a lot of them were going to be under financial stress for doing what they were doing. So I would pray that they would prosper, that they would always have enough, that they would not experience poverty at any point and place in their life. I would pray for relationships. Politics puts an incredible stress on relationships. You would see people falling out with one another. You would see friendships destroyed. You would see families breaking up. So I would pray for their relationships, that they would be strong and positive and that they would be a source of strength and blessing to them. Because that reflects God, the Father, Son and Spirit in perfect love and unity, doesn't it? That's God's will for everybody. I could pray that for them with complete conscience. And I would pray for salvation to be worked out in their lives. If they had some kind of faith, I would pray God to bring that faith to perfection, to open their eyes. If they didn't know Jesus, I would cry out, God, bring this person to Jesus. May they know you. May they be saved. And having finished praying all that lot for them, I actually found it very hard to see them really as my enemies anymore, regardless of what they were doing. How could Jesus pray on the cross, Father, forgive them? They don't know what they're doing. Because he was much better at this stuff than I was. He had spent his whole, his whole life praying for a world which was being whipped up to be his enemy when he came as its saviour, which, as a politician, I would never claim to have done. And these are things I'd want for anybody. I'd pray them for my friends too. But they're especially transformative when you pray them for those who are trying to drag you down. It's, it's just common grace. It's God's will for everybody. But really getting hold of that and understanding that that is God's will, even for people who might perceive themselves as my enemies and I might perceive, themselves, perceive them as that, you start to understand God's heart for them. And that brings your prayer life to a new place. And it even brings your relationship to them to a new place. A place that's perhaps closer to Christ's relationship to the world that he came to save. And then I would walk the streets. It is fantastic as a church. We've been prayer walking around Corringham and Stanford. I will guarantee you've not yet put in as many miles as I put in as a politician, knocking on every door, delivering leaflets to every house in my ward in Corringham and Stanford. You've got a few years to go before you catch up on that one, I'm afraid. That's just maths. Um, and it's boring. It's like being an unpaid postman a lot of the time. You're wandering around in the dark and the cold because election's in May, so you're starting about January, um, pushing leaflets through doors and that sort of thing. Um, so what do you do? Well... You pray, obviously. You prayer walk around the streets that God's given you some kind of political authority over. So I prayed for every street in Corium and Stanford. And after a while, you run out of creativity quite fast. 
And when you're freezing cold and you just want to get home, you, you kind of run out of the ability. Sometimes I would pray these incredible prophetic insights over places, and that's wonderful. But half the time I was just freezing cold. I wanted to get home. Um, I was out with a bunch of people who just wanted to get the job done. So you start saying, God, what's your prayer for this place? And here's what I kind of came up with. And I, I, I sort of shaped it a bit so that it rhymed, which made it really easy to do. So I, when I, I didn't know what else to pray in Corringham and Stanford, I would just walk down each street and I would pray, Lord, in this street, I pray for crime to decrease. I pray for addictions to cease. I pray for prosperity to increase. And I pray that families would live in peace. Because God was starting to reveal to me that these were some of the greatest brokennesses in our community, in our town. Crime was and is a real problem. Addiction was and is a real problem. Poverty and debt were and are real problems. And family breakup, breakup of relationships was a real problem. And all these things interact with one another. They don't usually come one at a time. They kind of hunt in packs. So that is the prayer that I would pray. And I'd like us to think, as we really respond to this verse in Jeremiah 29, to pray for the peace and prosperity of the city that God has called you into exile. First of all, let's just, be open, let's just open our eyes. We're not playing for an especially lovely place. Amazingly, God can reveal the beauty that he has placed within any person we encounter and with, within the place that we are called to. God can show us that. He can reveal beauty amongst the ashes. But there's an awful lot broken, and there's an awful lot wrong. We are genuinely living in a place of exile, and it's not great, as the barbed wire shows you. But I believe that pattern of health, prosperity, relationships, and salvation that was... I learnt in the hard place of praying for enemies has something to teach us about praying for our city of exile. And just as I came up with my kind of little rhyming prayer as I walked the streets, and you can borrow that one if you like, but that was pushing 10 years ago now. Um, maybe we need a new one. Maybe it's time to update that a little bit. So how can we build a prayer for our city? And this isn't a, a culmination to a message. This is homework, all right? But here's some things you might want to start with. Let's use that pattern, perhaps, health, prosperity, relationships, salvation. How do we pray for the health of the city that God has called us into exile? Well, yeah, we do need to pray for physical healings. I believe it is really relevant that we should pray for addictions. I believe that it is becoming more relevant each year as we move more and more into an information that we pray for the mental health of our friends and the people around us in our community. We are moving out of an industrial era in which the main health challenges were physical health, transmissible diseases as people moved into cities, industrial illnesses as people worked in new environments. The generation that is growing up now are growing up in an information age. They are overwhelmed and deluged with, it, with information. They are better protected in their physical health than almost any generation in history. And they are going down under an epidemic of mental health challenges because they live in a new age. And we will look back on this era in 100 years' time and say, how on earth could people expose them to that? Just as we look back at the Victorians now and say, how could they send kids into coal mines and into factories to, to die young? And the answer was kids had always gone with their parents to work. That was just normal. And it took them a while to realise the world had changed. 
How can we expose young people to what we're exposing them to on social media, unlimited access to the, the best in the world of what the world has to offer, knowing that the worst is always what's going to jump out and get them first? How can we do that? Because we didn't know, but we're going to have to wise up fast, people. Maybe this needs to be part of our prayer. That's all I'm saying. I'm going to start another message on that one. We need to pray for prosperity. Um, prosperity is not going up in our community right now. It's going down. Um, we want to pray for an end to poverty. We want to pray for material sufficiency. There is loads of research, I even wrote a book about it, that shows that being rich does not make you happy. It's just that being poor makes you miserable. Um, you need enough. People need sufficiency. They need enough to have all their basic needs met. If you don't have that, life is hard and difficult and your well-being is low and you are unhappy. Once you do have that, it doesn't matter how much more you've got, won't make you any happier. Sorry for those of you who are striving for those things. Ain't going to work. Never has, never will. The statistics are overwhelming. Um, but I pray that everybody in my town would have material sufficiency. They would reach that place of enough. And we know there are people who are not in that position right now. So let's pray. Debt is a massive issue and it's getting worse. Um, and let's pray for businesses to thrive. They are kind of part of the engine of prosperity in our economy. Let's pray this, this would be a place that thrives economically. We need to pray for relationships. Families are still breaking down. Relationships are still breaking down. Um, th there's a brilliant statistic, but it's tragic as well, that says if you grow up in a home with both of your parents, get your five GCSEs and take the first job that you're offered there's better than 90% chance you will never experience poverty at any point in your life. It's all it takes. And yet less than half the kids in our town meet even the first of those criteria. And these families are doing the best they can under incredibly difficult circumstances. But it is incredibly difficult. Let's pray for families. Let's pray they get together, they stay together, they come together. Kids find it harder and harder, you know, talk to those involved in education. Kids come not even knowing how to do friendship. They don't know how to be friends and they don't know how to be befriended. We need to pray for friendships. Social media has such a big role to play in this and its role can be so destructive. Not always, but an awful lot of the time. And like, it's like saying I've got a pet snake, it only bites me some of the time. You know, we don't do this with anything else, do we? So maybe exposing people to something that only bites them some of the time just isn't good enough. Loneliness is a huge issue in our community. There are people who are crying out just because of that lack of human contact. And it gets worse each year. There is division in society more and more. We break ourselves up into different groups of identity. I identify as this. I identify as that. I'm of this group. I'm of that group. And those groups treat each other with suspicion. And they're lined up against one, each, one another rather than seeing themselves as part of one community, one town, one society. Let's pray against social division. And how do you pray for salvation of a town? Surely towns don't get saved, do they? People get saved. Yeah, that's primarily true. Let's pray for salvation for individuals. Let's pray for revival, meaning a revival of individual salvation, people coming to know Jesus in our town. But there's a book, uh, I guess it's called Praying for Our Cities or something like that. I forgot to get the actual title. It's on a bookshelf somewhere. But anyway, it talks about the redemptive gift of cities and the fact that 
There are cities that are known for their creativity. There are cities that are known for their wealth creating and their success and flourishing in business. There are cities that are known for their strength in the arts. There are cities that are known for the works that they've done in compassion. There are cities that are known as peacemakers and place from which peacemakers come. There are cities that are known for good governance and righteous laws. That somehow God doesn't just bless individuals. God doesn't just save individuals. We live in such an individualistic society. We think that's all there is to it. God blesses communities. He saves communities. We see that in the Bible. We see that throughout history as well. So let's pray. God, what is the grace that you have placed on our town, our community? How do you see it? What is your vision for the kingdom of God as expressed through the lens of Corringham and Thurrock and Horndon and Fobbing and the bits around about and the places where you live? God, what is the redemptive gift that you have placed upon our city that you want to see called out of it? Because you care about us not just as individuals, but about a community of individuals as well. What is the grace that we bring to the world as a community and not just as a person? And let's pray for church unity, you know, where, where brothers dwell in unity, God commands the blessing. When we live in disunity, what's God not going to do? kind of obvious isn't it so let's pray we, we know that disunity has been a weapon the enemy has used against churches in our town so let's pray in the opposite spirit let's pray it was ground out of me learning how to pray these prayers for enemies and you're not talking about enemies here you're talking about people who care about you are just lost even though you get angry sometimes about the collective effect that it has but my challenge to you my homework for you something you might want to think about in your house churches and your homeworks is what is the prayer that God is giving me for my city. You can borrow mine as a starting point if you like. Crime to decrease, addictions to cease, prosperity to increase, families to live at peace. But maybe let's build our own for this time and for this generation and for this community and let's pray it and let's be people who genuinely can pray for the peace and prosperity of this city, even when we look round and know that in many ways we're exiles. Amen. <laughs>